This week I was reading Joshua chapter 3 in my Bible reading and I came across that text that describes the ark and the priests marching across the Jordan and how God gave Joshua a strict commandment that they should keep about a two-mile distance between them and the ark. And some commentators say this is because of the holiness and danger of the ark. And others say, no, it's so the people could see where they should follow. But it got me to thinking, at any rate, about the tradition of the Jewish people and about how drastically it changed when the Lord Jesus came. And, you know, we all have our traditions. There are birthday traditions, Christmas traditions, Easter traditions, July the 4th traditions, all sorts of little things that we like to do the same way that we always did them. And in our worship, we have traditions. Some of them are good and some of them are not so good. Some of them are damnable. Hopefully, we don't have any of those in our little congregation, but... The fact of the matter is that the Jewish people have their traditions. Some of them go back to Moses. Many of them are traditions which the Lord Jesus and his coming and offering himself and rising from the grave has set aside or has changed, but they have stuck with the old traditions, haven't they? And other traditions are more recent than that. And we don't like to change our traditions, do we? We're comfortable with them. Or some of us think that it would be wrong to change certain traditions, and we may be right about that, or we may be wrong. I heard a story the other day of a new rabbi who came to town, and on his first day at the synagogue, a commotion took place when they went to recite the Shema, Half the congregation stood up and recited the Shema, and the other half of the congregation remained seated and recited the Shema. And an argument broke out between the two factions, those who stood and those who stayed seated. And they began to argue and to rebuke one another, and it got a little noisy. And so the rabbi, being new, he didn't know what to think. He couldn't get anybody to agree what the tradition was for how we should recite the Shema at this local synagogue. One faction said it was always done standing. The other said, no, it was always done seated. Well, somebody suggested, well, perhaps you should consult with Moishi. Moishi is a 98-year-old founding member of this congregation, and he's in a rest home now. But perhaps you could go and ask him what the tradition is. So the rabbi went to visit Moishi and he took with him a representative of each of the factions. And so after greeting him and speaking with him, the rabbi said, we're here because we want to inquire of you what is the tradition for the recitation of the Shema at synagogue. And he said, is it that we stand when we recite the Shema? Is that the tradition? And Moishi said, no, that is not a tradition. And then he said, well, then it must be the tradition is that we sit while we recite the Shema. And Moishi said, no, that is not the tradition. And then Moishi asked, well, what happened when you recited the Shema? And the rabbi told him, well, 
A fight broke out. An argument ensued. And Moshe said, aha, that is the tradition that we argue about how we ought to recite the Shema. Now, the coming of the Lord Jesus was to change a whole lot of traditions. At least it should have. But for some people who were stubborn, it did not. The people who didn't follow Christ. The animal sacrifices, for example. Done with and gone. Christ offered the final sacrifice for sin. The only one that could take away sin. There was no more need for animal sacrifices. Well, you can imagine... That's a major break with tradition. Here you have a society that's built around the whole concept of the perpetual offering for sin. The annual offering for sin at the Day of Atonement. The Sabbath offerings. The daily sacrifice in morning and evening. You can't just change the tradition like that without a good reason. And they had the best reason, of course. But it is the abolition of animal sacrifices for the taking away of sin, for the satisfaction of God's righteousness and holiness. Another thing that gets reworked is the Sabbath gets reworked. The Sabbath gets reworked. Why? Because the Sabbath was a day of rest signifying and pointing to that time when the Lord's people were no longer slaves to sin and no longer subject to wrath and no longer labored futilely to establish their own righteousness. But Christ has made every day a Sabbath for his people. Why? Because we have been given a rest from our labors, not from the labors of our jobs or everyday life, but rather from the labor to fulfill all the law and to obtain our own righteousness by obedience. It was an endless, hopeless quest. But Christ has fulfilled all the law for us. We rest in him. No more labor to work out our own righteousness. But we are alive unto God by Jesus Christ. And he works in us now to will and to do his good pleasure. And then, of course, there was the change in the tradition of the separation of the people from God. They couldn't look on his glory. They couldn't see his face. They couldn't enter into the tabernacle or the Holy of Holies. Only the priests could do that. They were excluded, if you will, from direct contact with God, lest they die. But now we have, in Christ, we have God with us, don't we? We have Emmanuel, that being interpreted God with us. You remember in the Old Testament you read oftentimes that God says when there's a revival, when there's a restoration and so forth, then I will dwell with you. I will dwell with you. I will meet with you. But it was always at a hands-off distance sort of relationship because of the people's sin and because of God's holiness. But now, you see, we're not kept back from God anymore because Christ has set us free. Christ has redeemed us. Christ has made the final ultimate satisfaction for all of our crimes. He's reconciled us to God. We are now at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says at Romans 5. The people were kept back because of sin from the holy God. And we read about the consequences or the 
requirement that that imposed upon them in Leviticus 16, which describes the annual Day of Atonement. And you remember that only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and that time only one day a year, on the Day of Atonement. He could only go in after this elaborate cleansing ritual, and after a series of escalating sacrifices of various animals to make an atonement for his sin, for the people's sin, to cleanse the altar, to cleanse the tabernacle, etc., etc. He had to bathe himself, change into his special garments, and he had to take in this incense to fill the Holy of Holies, a small inner compartment of the tabernacle, with a cloud of incense so that he might not see the glory of God the Shekinah glory between the wings of the cherubim and hovering over the mercy seat where the blood atonement was made. And we read in Leviticus 16 at verse 2 of the start of all this, the Lord said to Moses, speaking to Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud above, upon the mercy seat. So you see, except under special circumstances and with special precautions, if he went into the holy place, he would be exposed to the glory of God and he would be struck dead. And at verse 3, Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a bird offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments, therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And then at verse 11, we see the procedure by which the priest could come in to the holy place once a year. Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, bring it within the veil, and he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not, and he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. Before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock. Sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make the atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the congregation of Israel. Now that last verse is in reference to the fact there were other priests who could come in to the outer chamber before the veil of the holiest place, but they were not to be there on this solemn occasion. They were to be excluded. Presumably it was too dangerous for them to be there. 
And so that prohibition is included. Now, you think of how hard it must have been to lay aside all this tradition when the Lord Jesus brought in an everlasting righteousness, rose from the grave. How can we stop? This has been going on for 1,200 years now. Like clockwork, except when they were taken away in slavery to the Babylonians and so forth. This has been going on and it's entirely necessary for the maintenance of the Jewish custom and practice. How can we lay aside that? How can we part from it? How can it be that the Lord's people can now embrace a new closeness unto God in Jesus Christ? How can that be? How can we not be kept apart by fear and dread and the commandment of God, the severe commandment of God, that people are not to enter into his presence except in these elaborate procedures once a year? Those who believe in Jesus, why we have been cleansed forever, you see, by his one offering. Notice that they couldn't go in because of their sinfulness, their unrighteousness, their uncleanness. But you see, for those who've trusted in Jesus and laid their hands upon his sacrifice, we have been cleansed from all of that. The thing that kept the Lord's people apart at arm's length from their God has been taken away by the offering of the Lord Jesus. And now, the ritual, the tradition must change because there is no more offering for sin. The writer of Hebrews, of course, who is addressing recalcitrant, backsliding, wavering Jewish believers in Jesus, makes this point very clear in that well-known text we read in Hebrews chapter 10. By the which will, that is the will of God, that his son, the Lord Jesus, should take the place of all the animal sacrifices and offer up himself for the sin of his people. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see the difference in the Old Testament. They were cleansed, but only temporarily. There was a propitiation, but only transient made by these animal sacrifices. But now by Christ's one-time offering for our sin, we're sanctified once for all. Never needs to be repeated. Our condition doesn't change into our former sinfulness and unrighteousness and uncleanness. But the writer goes further. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, the Lord Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So by the offering of Christ, he has taken away the bar that was between the Lord's people and the holy, righteous God by permanently cleansing them by his offering for sin. And then at verse 17, the promise being their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. 
Christ has executed the new covenant in his blood, like he said he would the night before he was betrayed. So that that promise kicks in that God had made in the new covenant, announced, for example, in Jeremiah 31, that he would not remember their sins against them anymore. And the astounding change, therefore, is that we are no longer excluded from the holiest place. We're no longer excluded from the holiest place by a veil. This is such an astounding change in tradition that people had a problem with it. And yet the writer of Hebrews is very careful to discuss these matters. Now it is no surprise that this should be strongly argued by the writer of Hebrews for it is addressed to those recalcitrant Jewish believers who are thinking of going back to the old defective inferior traditions. No, the writer says, Christ is the brightness of God's glory. Christ is the express image of the Godhead. He is God with us. God manifest and known in the flesh. Well, that's a big change, you see, in the condition that the old Jewish believers lived under. They look forward to Messiah coming. They look forward to Emmanuel's birth and reign. They look forward to the child born and the son given. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on. Not only does he describe in the first two verses or three verses of the book how Christ is the express image of the Godhead. I mean, this means that when we see Christ, we are looking at the image of God. But then he goes on to describe how Christ is better than Moses, how Christ is a better high priest than the Aaronic priesthood, how Christ's sacrifice is far better than the ones that they made by tradition. His sacrifice takes away sin forever. And so we have communion with our holy God in a way that is contrary to the former traditions which barred us from doing so. Hebrews introduces this matter of a change that goes right up into the Holy of Holies when he begins to introduce Christ as a better high priest for us in Hebrews 6 at the very tail end. We read this at verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So notice that the writer of Hebrews tantalizes the readers with this truth, that Christ is a high priest, that he enters into the veil, Thoughtful people, before they skip ahead and read chapters 9 and 10, may intimate that he is taking his sacrifice and presenting it on the mercy seat, as it were. And he has entered within the veil for us, but there's more than that, isn't it? Our hope is an anchor for our soul, sure and steadfast, and it entereth into that within the veil. That means that I take it the promise to us, what we enter into, according to this hope, which is fulfilled in Christ, goes all the way into the matters all the time before, hidden 
behind the veil. The hope, the promise of blessing and cleansing by the offering of the Lord Jesus. And the hope extends to the matters of propitiation and reconciliation with God. That process that always took place hidden behind the veil. Christ has entered there on our behalf as our leader. Because earlier in Hebrews, you remember it said that Christ was given a body and he suffered death for his people. Why? That he might lead many sons into glory. That he might lead many sons into glory. It is the promise and the purpose of Christ that he should introduce us all into the Holy of Holies, that he should bring us all through the veil into the presence of our God that we worship. They should do so by reconciling us forever and permanently and perfectly by the sacrifice that he would make. In Hebrews 9, the writer describes more fully the problem of the veil and of the holy place that we were always excluded from. At Hebrews 9, we read this recapitulation of the description of how the atonement was made once a year under the old tradition. Verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service, a worldly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. There is this reconciliation carried out every year, but it's only temporary. And the fact that the people couldn't enter into the holiest place beyond the veil, not even the high priest could enter into the holiest place, but once a year, and then only with blood, and then only with incense to cloud the glory of God between the cherubim. You see, it was a figure, the writer goes on to say, pointing to the better things that were to come in Christ. The better things that were to come in Christ. At verse 11, you see, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, He's talking there of the holiest place in the heavens, in glory, in the presence of God. That holy place, far more auspicious, far more sacred, far more full of the righteousness and holiness and 
brilliance of God than anything that could have been made by hands by the Jewish people. That was just a little diorama, a little picture, if you will, of the true that is in heaven. Christ has made a high priest of good things to come, not in that old tabernacle made of cloth and badger skins and boards, but neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So there you see that Christ fulfilled the figure of the better things that was pictured by the former things, the physical tabernacle where the Israelites worshiped God and where they were excluded from the holy presence of God by the veil. But then it says that the Lord Jesus has provided a better sacrifice and he's provided it or presented it at the real holiest place for the throne of God in glory. A more exalted holy place in heaven before God's throne. And he takes a better blood, doesn't he? He takes a better sacrifice. And he only has to go one time with that sacrifice. Not every year, as the old Jewish high priest did. Then verse 23 of Hebrews 9. Read this. This was therefore necessary. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So our Lord Jesus offered himself one time and entered the holy place in heaven with the blood of his sacrifice. And it was a one time for all transaction. One time for all. He never has to repeat it. Never has to be re-sacrificed. He never has to make a presentation again. And so our high priest brings one offering one time into the holy place and finishes the job forever of our redemption. But note well, the prohibition of the common people entering the holy place, going behind the veil, is abolished in Christ for the believer. And we read of this glorious truth in Hebrews 10 at verse 19. And think of how astounding this must have been to the Jewish believers when they realized that all those centuries they had been excluded from appearing before God by the veil because of their sin. But now in Christ, he has taken away their sin. He has sanctified them forever. He has purged them completely and forever. And now the writer of Hebrews is assuring them they have the right to enter in through the veil into the holiest place. And look at how he puts it. Verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. 
That's the entitlement that we have. We who've trusted in Jesus. We who've laid aside all of our works righteousness and cling only to the obedience and blood of our Savior. We have a right. We have a right to enter boldly into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The holiest. Think of it. That place that even in the picture of it, mankind was excluded from, barred from, by the veil. Now we are invited to enter into the presence of God, the holiest place. Notice it says with boldness, without trepidation or fear, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be reverent, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be worshipful, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be humble before our God, but nevertheless, there is a boldness there. There is an understanding of our situation, of our condition before God, that we have no fear, you see, to enter into the presence of God while beforehand all of his people were barred by the veil. But notice it's without fear. And why is that? Because of the blood of Jesus. It's through the blood of Jesus that we have the boldness to enter into the presence of God in the holy place. It reminded me of the words of that song that we love to sing. A debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy, I sing. Nor fear with God's righteousness on my person and offerings to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Can you imagine how astounding it must be to the Jewish believers who are so laden down with all those centuries of tradition to be told here of this great new liberty that now the Lord's people by the blood of Jesus can enter into the presence of the holiest without fear, with boldness. Because Christ has cleansed us for all unrighteousness, we are entitled to go where no ordinary Jew ever dared to go all those years. And think of it, we go into the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus. They went into a replica, if you will, a a tiny representation, or they could not go into the replica, the tiny representation of the reality that is in glory. We're titled to go there by a new and living way, the scripture tells us, through the veil that is Christ's body. And he says that in verse 20 of Hebrews 10, we go in there, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he had consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now this is a very interesting text for it suggests that there is a veil into the holiest place in glory. But it is the flesh of Christ. It is the body of Christ. And it is readily penetrated by those who believe and trust in Christ. You see, Christ presents all the glory of God to us in his humanity. Being with Jesus is being in the holy place, in the presence of the glory of God. He is, remember, 
He is the brightness of his glory. He is the express image of the Godhead. And this is in his body, in his humanity, in his incarnation. So you see all those people, all the disciples, knew it not, but it was as if they were already in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ. In fact, remember he told Philip, I believe it was, the night before he went to the cross, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's an astounding teaching, isn't it? But here, Christ's flesh is the veil into the holiest place. And his bodily sacrifice is the new veil into the presence of God's holiness. And all who come through the body of Jesus, that is, by virtue of his offering and his sacrifice, have no fear to enter into the holiest place. Then at verse 21, we read this. Having the high priest and high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in all assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice the hearts and minds have been purged of evil conscience of unreconciled, unforgiven sin. We're clean and pure before God. But notice also the reference to the old tradition of the washing of the high priest, having our bodies washed with pure water. You see, many of those traditions of the old law are repeated with their new and true and full meanings by the writer of Hebrews. That we should be washed by the water of the word, it says in another location. That the uncleanness of our flesh, you see, is taken away as far as it relates to being in the presence of God by the work of Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ, by the application of all these things to us through the word and through the Holy Ghost. Harks back to the ritual washings of the high priest. And therefore, you see, we can go into the presence of God, into the holiest place with true hearts, with full, with full assurance. So in Christ, we are all to enter behind the veil into the holy place where he is, where his blood has wrought a perpetual satisfaction for our uncleanness and for sin, which cannot be brought up against us by God anymore as he promised. And you know this was foretold, this penetration of the Lord's people through the veil into the very presence of God without fear was foretold at the death of the Lord Jesus. You remember in Matthew's Gospel, the 27th chapter at verse 45, which we read earlier this morning. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus, when he had cried with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks were split. The Lord Jesus has done away with the veil that keeps his people from coming into the presence of God 
in the most holy place. Here is a picture of the veil being rent in the temple. Because of the death of the Savior, all his people have free access to the holy place where propitiation has been made once for all in the presence of God. But as we started out, traditions die hard, don't they? And don't you know that the priests went back in that temple and stitched that veil right back up? Stitched it right back up. Well, we can't just have the holy place of God just open like that. We, it's got to be closed. We've got to maintain our tradition. We've got to keep going in there with sacrifices and with incense and so forth. We can't, we can't embrace Christ offering his body as a veil through which his people may freely enter into the presence of a holy God. No wonder Hebrews urges upon us all this new freedom and right that we have to enter boldly by the blood of Jesus into the very presence of God through the veil that is the Lord Jesus' body. It reminds us of that other song that we like to sing. Through thy precious body broken inside the veil. Oh, what words to sinners spoken inside the veil. Precious as the blood that bought us. Perfect as the love that sought us. Holy as the lamb that brought us inside the veil. Lamb of God, through thee we enter inside the veil. Cleansed by thee. We boldly venture inside the veil. Not a stain, a new creation. Ours is such a full salvation. Low we bow in adoration inside the veil. Soon thy saints shall all be gathered inside the veil. All at home no more be scattered inside the veil. Not from thee our hearts shall sever. We shall see thee. Grieve thee never. Praise the Lamb shall sound forever inside the veil. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for the access, the free access to the Father the Lord Jesus has obtained for us by dying for us, paying the price of our sin and rising again in power and glory unto our own resurrection, unto eternal life. What a glorious sacrifice our Savior has completed on our behalf. Let's give thanks first for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in the teaching of the Scripture that we have free access to you through the veil of Christ's body, we can come in where no one was allowed in before into the types and shadows because of sin, because of unrighteousness. But you have purged us all of that through the blood of Jesus. And his body was broken for us on the cross to make that final sacrifice for sin. And then he brings and presents that sacrifice before you in the holy place on our behalf. We give you the praise for his faithfulness and for your kindness to us in delivering him up for us. And we thank you for this bread he left us, the picture, that body that was broken and torn for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The scriptures tell us on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
I'd like to ask my Father if He'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, that He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until he comes. Let's all stand and sing number 121 in the black book. The veil is rent, lo, Jesus stands before the throne of grace. And clouds of incense from his hands fill all that glorious place. Within the holiest of all Cleansed by His precious blood, before His throne we prostrate, fall, and worship Thee, our God. 121.